Amen. If you'll kindly remain standing to honor God's word. And this morning it comes to us from 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. Therefore, dear friends, since you already know this, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of lawless men and fall from your secure position, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and forever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. This morning, as we uh, move back into our sanctuary, I want to uh, take a break from our Elijah series and maybe mark the occasion um, with some words that I, I pray will reflect um, our hopes for this space. What do we propose to do here in this room? What is the goal of gathering together like this? Let us pray. Oh Lord, these words are your words, and um, thus it is you who should speak them, and we pray your Holy Spirit would be our guide. You'd speak to each of our hearts and our minds, and that we'd be open to receive the word, your word, your eternal word, that does not change. Amen. What is the goal of gathering every Sunday morning, as one preacher put it, the relentless return of Sundays? They just keep coming and coming. What is our goal? Why are we doing what we are doing? I want to talk a little bit about a high level, maybe a reset for us to just be reminded of what we are doing here, what we are doing in this space. What is the goal? We gather here this morning, and we will continue to do it. The goal is to be changed. We want to be a people who will be changed. When Peter began his letter to the churches in Asia Minor, he he addressed it to the exiles of the dispersion. And the last time we heard that phrase in the Bible, it referred to the Hebrews who had been carried away into captivity in Babylon. Peter was writing to a group of Christians who uh, they were in a place where they did not want to be. They were living in a strange land. They were living in a land because they had been forced out through persecution. They were living in a place with strange customs, with with all kinds of different belief systems. And Peter was their pastor, and he was writing to them to encourage them and to warn them, to be pastor to them. They were living with all kinds of their beliefs. Had their, their neighbors had all kinds of different beliefs and practices. Mystery cults were everywhere around them. Maybe it wasn't all that different than the society and the world that we're living in. And maybe that world is increasingly becoming diverse in its belief systems and its practices. And Peter ended his letter to this church that he he loved with these wonderful words. He said, therefore, my friends. Now, all through this letter, he's been warning them, be on your guards that you'll not be carried away by the air of, of lawless and fall from your secure uh, position. But now at the end, he's tender and pastoral. He's writing to his friends. 
He's writing a church that he loved deeply, a church that he cared for. It's a letter full of hope, warning, love, grace. And above all else, we read about a pastor who was separated from his flock, but he loved them dearly. And he ends with these words, these words that so often we use here in our church that form a benediction for us. It's also a mission statement. Therefore, my friends, may you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior. What are we doing here in this room? What is the goal? To be changed, but how? How will we be a people who are changed, transformed? Well, I think part of it is that we are in the words that Peter uses here. He calls these people in his church, my friends. What will we do in this room when we gather? Part of what we're doing here is we are cultivating friendship. This is a goal. We are cultivating deep friendship. Sometimes around the church, we use the word fellowship. Now, you might think that friendship is a kind of a lesser goal. I mean, it doesn't, normally, we don't talk about it up there with prayer and fasting and maybe some of the loftier spiritual goals. Eugene Peterson says this, however, he said, friendship is a much underestimated aspect of spirituality. It is every bit as significant as prayer and fasting. It's like the sacramental use of water and bread and wine. Friendship takes what is common in human experience and turns it into something holy. When we, my friends, when we lock our arms together in community, we are in effect redeeming, undoing the awful effects of the fall. Sin entered into our world, but it was never supposed to be this way. We were always supposed to be and were created to be in deep community with each other, in deep friendship with each other. That was the created order. But because of the fall, relationships are hard. Sin affects how we connect to each other. It hurts and damages community always. So when we say when we gather, we want to be deep friends with one another, we're actually trying to unwork that curse. We're trying to say no and live into the way God intended us to live. I think one could argue that the number one crisis in our society right now, the number one crisis, health crisis, emotional crisis, spiritual crisis, is loneliness and isolation. We want good fellowship. Now, I don't know what your mind conjures up when you hear the word fellowship. For a long time for me, the word fellowship was a, a churchy word that I associated with boredom and feelings of claustrophobia <laughs> when I was young, especially. There was that strange ritual each Sunday after worship services known as the fellowship hour. And that was the hour when folks stood around with styrofoam cups of anemic coffee and made interminable small talk. Um, kind of like a sanctified cocktail party, but not nearly as much fun. <laughs> and when I was young and they would talk about the fellowship hour, I thought, wow, this is dreadful. Please count me out. And I just couldn't wait till my parents would end the fellowship hour so that we could leave and get on to more important things like football games, whatever else was happening. But I'm grateful to J.R.R. Tolkien for rescuing this word for us. 
He gives us back the original meaning and he restores it. As many of you know, the first volume of his Lord of the Rings trilogy is entitled The Fellowship of the Ring. And it's the story of nine very different individuals, hobbits, humans, elf, dwarf, and a wizard. And they commit themselves together in a costly fellowship where each learns to rely on the strengths of others. A fellowship where lasting friendships are forged into the, in the midst of the fires of adversity. There's nothing churchy or boring about it. It's an adventure word. It's an exciting word. People joke that Presbyterians are the frozen chosen. <laughs> but I have seen little evidence for that. Because I have felt the deep love, and fellowship of journeying with you in an adventure, trying to undo the effects of the fall. Let's walk together. Let's journey together. Let's pray for each other. Let's go through this adventure of life together as a community of people who deeply love each other. That is a powerful statement. And by the way, it's what Jesus did. He went with others, a community that he loved. Peter talks about the church as living stones built on the foundation of Jesus, supporting one another. And he's given us so many strengths here in this church. Peter says, keep meeting together, building friendships, loving each other. They will know we're Christians when we do this. When we love each other, says the old song. My friends... And then Peter gives them this charge, this benediction, these words of mission. May you grow in grace. Why are we here this morning? To be changed. How are we changed? By the power of grace. It is tempting because we're very blessed to have an incredible choir and amazing musicians it's tempting to think, and it's very easy to slip into the feeling that what we're doing here in this room is entertainment. But it's not. It's not. Sometimes we ask questions like, how was worship? How was it? Was the choir good today, we say? Hopefully the sermon was better than last week's. And thus, we kind of treat worship as something designed to help us feel better. Namely, to feel better about ourselves. Why would we come here unless we were hoping to feel better about who we are, about ourselves? And maybe some entertainment with some good words will, will, will help do that. But if we have that mentality, we will miss the mark. Because we gather, friends, as wounded people scarred by sin, exhausted by trying all week long to manage our sin. We wander into the sanctuary full of despair because what we thought would bring us life has only brought us drudgery. And then we thought, well, we'll just try harder and harder and harder. And we walk into the sanctuary exhausted. And we walk in and we wonder, maybe the words here are true, though. We all walk into the sanctuary guilty. We're all a mess, all of us. And so what do we do? 
We confess our sins. We, we, we worship when we worship. We talk about how wrong we are, how awful I am. All the things I've done this past week to think that I could manage my life and with enough effort bring myself some life. We say we are sorry when we worship. That's not entertainment. It actually isn't designed to make us feel good about ourselves. It isn't. It's actually designed so that we will feel sorry for our, what we've done and who we are in our state. It's not the recipe for feeling good. But then, and I hope you catched it this morning, but then it happened right here from this lectern, and we will do it every Sunday. Pastor Bruce is going to stand here and he's going to say these words. He's going to say, hear the good news. The saying is sure and worthy of full acceptance. Jesus Christ came into our world to save sinners. Did you hear the power in that? Did it take your breath away? Pastor Lynn will stand here and she'll say, believe the gospel in Jesus Christ. We are forgiven. Wow. If true, hardly anything else matters in this world. Pastor Kirk will stand here and he'll declare to us, as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our sins from us. Consider it. Where are you going to go to hear life-changing words like that? Powerful words. We're going to hear it here. I envision Pastor Drew standing here and saying, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but receive life everlasting. Friends, worship is not designed to make us feel good. It's not designed to make us feel good about ourselves. It is designed to make us feel good about God. Amen? Amen. And to be reminded of his grace what I desperately need. I got to hear it every week after the things I said, after the things I did, after the things I neglected or whatever else I need to hear the powerful truth about God's character. You see, God's plan for us is that we would grow up in grace and be changed. You know, we're all going to grow in age. Right? I mean, we're all growing in age. There's nothing we can do about that. But, but growing in grace, that's kind of up for grabs, isn't it? It is. Wouldn't it be wonderful as you and I grow in age, we also grow in understanding of how good God is and how he forgives us. Wouldn't it be awful if your grandchildren said these words? You know, granddad, as he grows in age, he's getting more agitated and impatient. And he's less fun to be around. Can you imagine? Or, or what if your children said, you know, mom, every year it feels like mom is becoming more cynical and less generous. Boy, dad seems to be growing more bitter and angry, more self-centered every year. That'd be a tragedy. But what if they said, you know, as dad gets older, I'm seeing something happening. He's more gentle. He's more joyful. 
I don't know what it is, but mom just seems to be more interested in me these days. Growing into the likeness of Jesus Christ, being changed, getting to know God's character, leaning on his love and becoming like him. And then finally, we want to develop fellowship and grow in grace. And we also want to grow in the knowledge of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. We gather in this room to learn about Jesus. We do. We teach. We preach. We, we do all the things because we want to know him better. We, we worship him. We encounter the risen Christ here in the sanctuary. There, there's the, the promise of the Holy Spirit is whenever we gather, the Holy Spirit will just be here. And, and there are times like I envision on special services or ordinary days when we'll just feel the Spirit here in our midst and we'll worship and we'll say thank you. And in the midst of that, we want to learn more about who Jesus is. You know, you learn to ride a bicycle by riding a bicycle. Uh, Pre-riding instructions on the theory and practices of bicycling can be enormously helpful. You put your feet in these pedal things and your hands here, and when you want to stop, you squeeze these things. But how helpful actually is that knowledge? It really isn't. You can only learn to ride a bicycle by actually doing it. There's a point where you've got to get on and you're launched. And that wobbly movement sometimes ends hurtful, but you gained and you learned and you did it again. Um, You fall at least once. There will be a scraped knee here. It's all part of learning. And one of the challenges we're going to face when we gather as a community is by thinking that just knowledge about Jesus is enough. I was thinking this past week about people in my life who I admire. We live in a society where we all have heroes. All of us might have a ready list of people we admire. Might be a celebrity or a political figure, maybe a parent. Perhaps it's someone who's achieved a goal in a field that, that you strive, your line of work. Maybe it's some, someone of great courage. All of us could name probably some names of people that we admire But we need to hear the words of the great Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard when he said, Jesus never once asked for admirers. He actually never even asked for worshipers or adherents, wrote Kierkegaard. No, he asked for followers or disciples. A follower is or strives to be what he admires. An admirer keeps himself or herself personally detached. An admirer fails to see that what is admired involves a claim upon that person. Admirers are only too willing to serve Christ as long as proper caution is exercised. Lest one personally come into contact with any danger, or I might add, uncomfortability. They refuse to accept Christ's life is it, that it's a demand. In actual fact, Kierkegaard wrote, they become offended by him. Jesus said, follow me. We're going to learn about Jesus. We're going to tell Jesus stories right here. 
We want to know him. We want to learn all about him. We want to learn about what he said, what he taught, what he did, how he treated people. We want to learn everything we can to know about Jesus. But let us not forget the reason we're doing that is so that we will do what he did, that we will be changed, that we will live the way he lived. He says, follow me. It means actually doing what he did. We begin to practice. And so we're going to encourage each other. Let's do what Jesus told us to do. Let's bless those who curse us this week. Let's turn the other cheek. Let's give generously to the poor. Let's touch lepers. Let's speak tenderly to those who have lost their way like prostitutes or tax collectors. Let's forgive. Let's forgive those who don't conform to our ways. Let's forgive family members who have let us down. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, the church exists for nothing else but to draw men and women into Christ, to make them little Christs. If they're not doing that, all the cathedrals, clergy, missions, sermons, even the Bible itself are simply a waste of time. God became man for no other purpose. It is even doubtful you know whether the whole universe was created for any other purpose. That's why we're here. To grow in grace. To grow closer to each other. To learn more about Jesus and then to know him in a way that we learn how to live like he lived and trust and follow his teaching. Or if we do that, when we do that, and I believe we will do that, we're going to be a people who are changed. We're going to be a people who are transformed. And we will be so ready and anxious to gather back in this room to hear those words, in Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. Christ died for us. There's no better words. There's no more powerful words than that. And we're going to say them over and over and over again. In his second Narnia book, Lewis, you remember the children went to Narnia and they discovered Aslan, the, the great lion, the Christ figure. And then there was a period of time, but then they were thrust back into Narnia and they were wondering, are we going to see Aslan again? And Lucy is the great hero of these Narnia stories. And she had a special relationship with Aslan. She loved Aslan. And here she is thrust back into Narnia and she sees him for the first time and she's full of joy. Welcome, child, Aslan said. Welcome. Aslan said, Lucy, um, you're, you're bigger. Well, that is because you are older, little one, answered he. Not because you are. I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. That's our prayer. Every year, Mountain View grows. We'll find him bigger and more wonderful. All glory be to God.
Let us pray. Father, we thank you for Peter's gentle and encouraging words to his church. May we hear those words as words directed to us. We want to grow. We want to be changed. We want to be transformed into the likeness of your son, Jesus Christ. For that, we're going to need and lean on your grace. What a joy it is to receive your grace, your forgiveness. So today, we thank you for Jesus. To him be the glory, both now and forever. Amen.